90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Cold. <laughs> oh, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I know, I can't really complain. I mean, I couldn't complain when you lived in Pennsylvania either, but we are in the midst of an ice storm here, so that's exciting. Yeah, y'all had, uh, I was seeing people reporting to the weather service on Twitter, uh, some places up to maybe four-tenths of an inch of ice on things. Yeah, it's quite a bit. Um, and I don't think we actually reached ice storm status. There's not a lot of wind, thank goodness, because usually these things, as you will remember, uh, are accompanied with a bunch of wind and they're terrifying. But no, this was just a lot of sleet and um, we've been out of school for three days, so that's super <laughs> exciting. <laughs> you haven't gone to Code Plaid yet? Oh, not yet, but I did go out and buy an Xbox One, so... <laughs> <laughs> Much to my son's eternal gratitude. <laughs> well, I would say here we probably got, oh, between eight inches and a foot of snow, depending on where you were. That's uh, nothing. It was really light. It was really light and fluffy, though. Oh, that's nice, fancy, fun playing in snow. But I'm guessing you didn't done that. No. In fact, I've been trying to stay warm. Uh, the, let's see, night before last, we got down to minus 12 Fahrenheit. So that's minus 24 degree science for the rest of the world. And uh, then I think we've been minus 10 or minus 9 Fahrenheit uh, last night. So, and tonight's looking to get below zero again. See, it just doesn't compute. Like, as much as I want to say I love snow and I love cold climates, like, I'm from Oklahoma, man. Like, anything lower than 32, it's basically all the same. <laughs> It really, well, below zero is definitely all It definitely is. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's cars off the road everywhere, and it's mass chaos here. You know, I got my milk and bread on Tuesday before it all hit, so. <laughs> Toilet paper? Yep, yep, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess- Those eight are the to, essentials. Exactly. Eight to 12 inches where you are really probably doesn't shut anything down, I'm guessing. The schools didn't even have a delayed start. Yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, no, <laughs> well, I mean, because of all this and all this crazy weather we've been having, um, I thought that that's something that we should talk about today because we started off this week here in Oklahoma with the threat of severe weather, like flash flooding, hail, you know, big damaging winds, and that didn't happen at all. And instead, we wound up with this ice storm that no one thought would happen either. <laughs> Well, but there were some thunderstorms because you all had this cold front that it advanced over you and dropped the temperature 40 degrees. And then at night it mixed back and it uh, <laughs> became a warm front that went over you. And then the next morning it advanced again. And so you had three 30 to 35 degree temperature swings it in did. a period of six hours. It was super weird. I will say because we were right on that line. And while, you know, I've been near that before, I've never experienced stuff like that because we would go outside and it would be steamy and amazing, and it'd be t-shirts, and then we'd come inside, do some stuff, and then go back outside, and it was freezing with this north wind, and then we would repeat it. It was so weird. <laughs> it was so weird. So yeah, the, it couldn't make up its mind. Um, we got a few thunderstorms out of it, that's true, uh, but nothing severe or anything, so that was nice, but it was a really harsh front. It was very... It's been a very interesting three or four weather days. <laughs> yeah. And so when these weather events happen, you often see different media outlets reporting different things about watches, warnings, advisories, emergencies, statements, you know, winter storm Jane or whatever the weather <laughs> channel decides to call it. Oh, don't even. Uh, don't even. We don't name winter storms, people. <laughs> I know. And it's... It's very confusing, and it's something that really there's not a lot of outreach going on to the general public about. You know, there really isn't. And I, I've i grown up and lived most of my time in very, um, very severe weather-type places, right? So out there in Colorado and then here in Oklahoma as well. And so it seems like most people get their information, most of the general public, not our nerdy friends, get their information from TV meteorologists, right? And they don't really give any sort of shout out or anything to 
the weather service meteorologist. And so it, it might be different in other places. This is just my experience where I've grown up. And um, so, yeah, I don't think the public actually gets to know what the distinctions between those things that you were talking about are, watches, warnings, advisories, and stuff. And I think it's worth saying because it does cause a lot of confusion, especially for people, you know, trying to figure out what the weather is. Um, I definitely get asked a lot of questions during severe weather season, which is great. You know, I, I love playing that part and helping people understand it. But the weather people here get into a massive frenzy, as you will <laughs> no doubt remember, um, anytime there's weather at all. So it's kind of interesting to see the play between the weather service and the TV meteorologist. But this is something that I think, you know, the general public should really know about because there's a big difference between watches, warnings, and advisories. There's a big difference between a TV meteorologist saying, you know, oh, it looks like there could be a tornado here and saying there is a tornado warning because places like TV stations don't issue tornado warnings. That comes from the weather service. Right, exactly. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't even know, in my experience, talking to the general public, that, you know, the TV meteorologists aren't the ones in charge of this stuff. And the technology that TV stations have versus what, you know, the weather service has is a lot different. Absolutely. So I think that's sort of what we're going to do is maybe not go over the whole list of warnings because there is an absurd <laughs> amount of warnings, including volcanic events, tsunami, mudslides, landslides, <laughs> all the normal weather. There's a lot. There are. There are a ton. <laughs> but I figured we could just we could just hit the high points of the differences between these things. And so what we're going to talk about is watches, warnings, advisory statements, and outlooks, because those are really the things, if you are a frequent visitor to the weather service, that you will see very often. Right. And so we should probably start with the least ominous one of these things. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which is actually Outlook. I Statement seems least ominous, but um, in terms of just vocabulary, but <laughs> the Outlooks are really the least ominous because these are long range forecasts and therefore just as many parameters and time frames as there are watches and warnings, really. Um, but a lot of these Outlooks come from the Climate Prediction Center, the CPC. Right. And so these are things that go basically a couple weeks out to maybe a year. Right. And as you would expect, um, they're really sort of monthly to seasonal climate outlooks that look at temperature and precip. And this is where it gets a little confusing because these seasonal outlooks of temperature and precip are basically rated on above chance, below chances, or equal chances um, and they call this of probability of exceedance. So are you going to be above normal, below normal on temper precip, or do you have equal chances of being either one of those? Right. So are you statistically going to be above the statistical average? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually when you're in that E area, because the map is literally, it has an A, a B, or an E on it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so that E really confuses people because they assume that means that it's going to be average, but that's not the case here. Yeah. And this is a lot of time where people say, well, the weather service said it's going to be a wetter than normal winter. No. 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 <laughs> exactly. And I mean, the, the verification, which is what we call, you know, if you forecast anything or if a model does something and whether it was right or not, right? So like the verification on these is quite low, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what the exact statistics are on that, but it is sort of just very long-term guidance for what we expect. Is it going to be a hotter-than-normal summer? That's kind of the, the emphasis that we're putting on this here. Right. And it, all these forecasts follow something called the cone of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so, just like a cone, if you're looking a day out or three days out, really, is kind of the rule of thumb, you know, you, your uncertainty is quite low. And then as you go out, it just cones <laughs> into a large swath of uncertainty. And so there's a lot of different things that could happen, especially on the year time frame, right? <laughs> right. And we, you, see, you see these cones everywhere. Like they're visualized when you're looking at hurricane tracks. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, but, That's... Th but they apply to temperature forecasts and everything else as well. Right. They do. There's another thing that we call spaghetti plots, but we can, we can talk about that when we talk about models later. <laughs> Right. Uh, 
Um, so one of the outlooks that you would see pretty frequently is maybe the most frequently um, is the extended range outlook, which is on the order of six to 10 or 18 to 14 days. And so that shows departure from normal temp and precip. Um, and the difference between these extended range outlooks and those larger seasonal outlooks is that there's a little bit more forecasting that goes into this. And so these outlooks will come with a technical explanation that's sort of more in depth than you would see for the other outlook maps. Right. So based on the current pattern that's set up, which will likely persist for a couple of weeks, uh, are we expecting a hazard in week two of a severe heat wave, for example? Right. Exactly. Or this time of year, wind chill, because that's a big deal in some places. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they also issue that the CPC also issues a variety of other outlooks uh, that cover everything from UV forecasts, uh, the drought outlook, uh, soil moisture, all kinds of things that are interesting, uh, especially for folks in Agri. Uh, right, exactly. And uh, the probability of exceedance outlook, <laughs> because we love math. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> if we're talking about outlooks, too, we can't forget the outlooks that are put out by the Storm Prediction Center, um, because these are outlooks that I know both of us have spent a lot of time reading. And these are much shorter timescales, so this is not from the Climate Prediction Center, but the Storm Prediction Center. And so, obviously, this is going to focus on storms. Um, and so, these outlooks go up to three days. I know they have experimental products that go longer than that. But the most common one that you're going to look at is the convective outlook. So is there going to be convection somewhere in the country? And what is that going to look like? Right. So do we expect a squall line to develop? Do we expect uh, thunderstorms? That's another one. Mm -hmm. uh, or they even have outlooks for things like fire weather. So these are uh, sort of the more traditional severe weather events. Right. Exactly. So that's kind of the... The long term, I mean, long term three days, but mostly the long term. And like you said, probably the least scary of the <laughs> of the products that come out is the outlook. Um, but the next is the statement. And I actually couldn't find a lot about when forecasters would issue a statement. So I just kind of have a we get these special weather statements all the time. And it seems like those are just something where the forecasters say something of interest could happen, details haven't coalesced yet, but you should be aware. So I don't know if you know anything more specific about statements. I don't know any hard and fast rules, but I don't know that I've ever seen a statement more than 72 hours out. Yes. Yep. Okay. I would, I would agree with that. So that's something that's kind of like, eh, something's happening, but it's not enough to put a watch because watches are generally 48, 24 to 48 hours out. Right. And so it's maybe we're expecting a an icing event. Right. Uh, but we're not ready to issue a watch on that yet. It's sort of getting closer than the outlook range now. Yes. Uh, and it's something that you should be starting to plan for. Right. Exactly. Um, so generally, these are on the sort of quarter to half of the state level. Then I notice every once in a while something weird is happening. If there's a fire somewhere, they might issue a special weather statement to talk about air quality because maybe the air quality hasn't exceeded levels to put it out a warning, but it's just something they want to make, you know, if you have respiratory problems, they want to make you aware of or something like that. Right. Yeah. So that's where I've seen statements. But then we get to the one that's pretty frequent, and I would argue this is the most misunderstood is a watch. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> every time you explain watches, it generally is new information yes. to folks. Yes. Uh, so watches happen when we're, we believe that there is a possibility that a specific type of event could happen in a specific area at a specific time. And could happen are the key words here. Not going to happen, could happen. <laughs> right. So if you're under a severe thunderstorm watch, there is very likely not a single return on the radar, and there might not be for up to a day. Yes, exactly. So these are, and I don't know if this is a rule either. I would think that it's on the 24-ish hour 
um, plan, is, it seems, when Watches comes out. But those aren't the promise of any specific weather event. It just means it's possible and that you should pay attention in case it does happen. But I feel like watches are taken by people as, we're going to have thunderstorms today, and then they get really mad when it doesn't happen. Right. It just means you should be watching the weather. How about and, that? And <laughs> uh, it's, you know, generally, when I lived in Oklahoma, I would say it was not uncommon at all for there to be a severe thunderstorm watch issued at eight or nine in the morning that might go till midnight or 2 a.m. Exactly. Yeah. I so think it's a that's... very big range and it generally covers many, many counties. Right. And that's pretty frequent, it seems like, in the summertime. Um, something that I didn't really realize is that severe thunderstorm watches and tornado watches, which is what we most frequently get, um, are issued by the SPC, not the local uh, weather service offices. Right. So any tornado watch, any severe thunderstorm watch, anywhere in the u.s comes from norman oklahoma right exactly yep you're welcome everybody <laughs> <laughs> um but i there those aren't the only watches obviously your local offices are putting out lots of watches um you know winter storm watches freeze watches fire weather hurricanes excessive heat flash floods we get those a lot flood watches that's a big deal because when you expect you know, a big rain event, you want people to be aware that there could be flash flooding. And so that's one that we will frequently see as well. Right. And so these are, like we said, they're to alert you, but they don't mean it's for sure going to happen. They definitely don't mean that it is happening. Yes. So for the it is happening or it is for sure going to happen, that's where the advisory comes in. So although I think people kind of get these backwards that an advisory is less serious than a watch it's actually the opposite um so advisories are in between watches and warnings which we've been under a winter storm advisory for the past couple days and that means that the event is either imminent or is occurring but the conditions haven't reached a warning level yet right and We'll get to warnings in a little bit, but for there to be a severe thunderstorm warning, there are very, very specific criteria that must be met. Right, exactly. And so the advisor is, this thing is happening, or it's definitely going to happen in the next, you know, 12 hours or something like that. I mean, with a winter storm, it could be 24 hours out because you've, if you've pinpointed it. Um, and so that's something that you need to take more seriously than a watch, because that means that, you know, they've got a really good handle on the situation for a good deal of the area. And so this thing is going to happen. <laughs> right. So if you're in a severe thunderstorm advisory, there is a thunderstorm. It is very, very likely going to impact you, but it's not to the, the warning stage yet. Or in your case right now, you're under a winter weather advisory <laughs> yeah. and school's been closed for three days, but it's not really severe. Yeah, so that's, that's really funny to me because it seems like we're frequently under ice storm warnings, right? And it was this dire situation, but we've just been under this winter weather advisory, which is what we're still under right now. And I feel like people maybe don't take it as seriously, which even though it's not a warning, just like you said, we've been out of school for three days and there are cars off the roads everywhere. <laughs> Right. So, you know, just because it says advisory, it doesn't mean like, maybe you should be careful. It means this thing is actually happening. So do what you need to do. And I mean, there's wind chill advisories. We get those frequently here. And so, you know, if you can take it, go out. But if you can't, be advised. There's some pretty bad wind chills out there. Right. And dense fog is another advisory that we get here very often. And when I'm driving into the work, or when I'm driving into work in the morning, uh, it's always relatively early, and I often run into patches of very dense fog in some of the valleys. Right, and so now you're aware of it, and maybe you're going to slow down a little bit. I mean, which, if you see dense fog, hopefully you're going to slow down anyway, but, you know, it's something that if you know that it's, there's an advisory, then it's really going to happen, so there you go. Right. Um, there's, you know, small, small craft advisories, because I like to look at the entire weather map um that we we have links for all these in the 
in the show notes, um, but there's a link on here that takes you and it shows all the watchings, watches, warnings, and advisors throughout the whole U.S. So I always think that's a fun one to look at. Yeah, you see some advisories that are, eh, if you're in a small boat, you're probably going to get tossed around a decent amount. <laughs> right, exactly. So like in Florida right now, as of recording time, um, there's east winds, 25 knots in the Straits of Florida, and that's eight foot seas. So, you know, that's pretty... That's pretty big. It's not warning level, but it's definitely, you know, something is happening right now that could be hazardous to small, you know, boats. Yeah, eight foot seas are something you want to be advised of if you're in a 15 foot sailboat. Uh, right, exactly. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the in the small craft advisory, it says inexperienced boaters should avoid operating in these conditions. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good um the best one that i've seen is a brisk wind advisory (laughs) which is generally the understatement of the month (laughs) i know i love it like how is this not a wind chill advisory what does brisk wind mean (laughs) well i think it's you know we get uh windstorms in the in the springtime out here but it's not a wind chill hazard but there are tumbleweeds flying through the middle of the air yeah i guess that's actually exactly what it is um so this one is going on right now in alaska and so they have a gale warning that's in effect thursday morning so see this advisory is in effect right now because there's some pretty strong sustained winds and they know they're going to get stronger tomorrow So they've already issued a gale warning for tomorrow, but right now this is happening below the warning threshold, and so therefore, brisk wind advisory. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned warnings. So let's go on to warnings, which is where you really need to be getting worried. Right. Um, (laughs) So we're not worried right now in Norman, even though we've shut down the entire you know, central part of Oklahoma, (laughs) our winter weather advisory means two inches of snow or sleet. um, And that's it because the warning, like I said, has very specific criteria, right? Um, And so our winter storm warning is five inches of snow or sleet accumulation in 12 hours or seven inches in 24 hours and or there's usually a bunch in here, <laughs> 25 to 34 mile per hour winds. Right. And you've reached none of those thresholds. Right. Exactly. Um, and you may think that that sounds funny, up to 34 miles per hour. But when you go above that, then you're in a blizzard warning. Right. And things sometimes are in weird miles per hour because a lot of this was traditionally defined in knots. Yes, exactly. Just like the weird hurricane scales. <laughs> Um, so I often find myself reciting this constantly in the springtime, you know, what are, what are the warning criteria for severe thunderstorms or tornadoes? Because those are the big ones that we get here, right? So severe thunderstorm warning is winds 58 miles an hour or greater and or one inch hail. And do you know why those values were selected? Why were they selected? Because the Weather Service was formerly the Air Force Weather Bureau. Mm-hmm. And those values were selected because those are the thresholds for being hazardous to aircraft. On there you field. go. Awesome. There you go. I, kn- I knew you'd have a nugget of interesting information in all of this. <laughs> so at 58 miles an hour, you have to worry about the planes, you know, flipping over, blowing away, uh, that kind of thing. And one-inch hail, you have to worry about damage to cockpits, wings, the thin aluminum surfaces, that kind of thing. Right. Or that'll definitely hurt some crops, too, which is what a lot of people worry about out here when we're talking about severe thunderstorms and why my homeowner's insurance is literally through the roof. (laughs) (laughs) And so one-inch hail, I mean, that's pretty big. Yeah. But in five years living in central Oklahoma... uh, I can count multiple times that I saw baseball size hail. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> My gutter bears the scars of <laughs> larger than one inch hail right now. <laughs> yes, I, I lost a mirror on a vehicle to baseball size hail. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Back when I used to. So I used to work at the Sphere Storms Laboratory. Um, and I got to drive around the cars that do all the tornado chasing. And I always got put in the hail car because the very first time <laughs> I went out, they made me drive the hail car, and I lost a windshield and a back windshield. 
<laughs> and I had to drive back from Shamrock, Texas, which is, you know, a good four hours, five, yeah, yeah four hours away, uh-huh, with no windshields. <laughs> so mm-hmm. ever since then, they gave me a helmet and put me in the hail car. <laughs> it was lots Show of Show title. Exactly. <laughs> They really did. We had dry ice and in the uh, ice chest in the back, and we were supposed to go out and collect it. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was an undergrad, so obviously I was the one that had to go do it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So that's severe thunderstorm. Then there's a tornado warning, which for a tornado warning to be issued, they have to have some confidence that they're is or very likely will be in the next few minutes a tornado so it could be radar indicated or it could be someone calling in or sending them a picture on twitter and saying look tornado exactly and so this is this is not like we've got a bad storm there could possibly be a tornado it means that they've seen on the radar because you can tell wind speed and direction on a radar they've seen winds that are spiraling in a tornado-like fashion right so they've seen wind shear um they'll usually call it gate to gate wind shear because you receive your data in these little bins called gates and so if you see one gate with winds going away from the radar and one gate with winds coming towards it it means you have a rotation and so that could turn into a tornado fairly easily and therefore they warn on that storm or like you said if someone's there well, and sometimes depending on the geometry, uh, if the storm is relatively close to the radar and the, so the radar can see very low in the atmosphere and a tornado touches down and starts picking up debris, sometimes you can actually see a debris ball reflection on the radar and you know there's a tornado on the ground when you see this very characteristic signature. Right, exactly. Hopefully you will have already warned on that storm um, by the time yes. you see a debris ball. It's terrifying. Those are really terrifying because... Um, Back when I I worked uh, at the Severe Storms Laboratory right after the May 3rd, 1999 tornadoes, which a lot of people have forgotten about because we've had several huge ones move in since then. Um, But that was a huge F5. Well, there was a bunch of F5s that day. And you could see those debris balls on the the radar. And you could even do cross-sections through them. And they were high. Like, they were really big. (laughs) When you could see, you know, a vertical amount of debris running through this storm that's, you know, 15 miles away from the radar. Yeah, that's a big tornado. Exactly. And, you know, in places in Oklahoma uh, where there are spotters out, there are a lot of places where there's no cell phone signal, so you're using things like a ham radio to call in reports to the weather service. So they have a ham radio operator on duty when there's severe storms as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very intense environment during those times, <laughs> um, especially if you have a lot of storms going on in your area at once. Because that's that's a lot of um, a lot of stuff to watch, right? And a lot of data to take in, and that has to go into these warnings. Um, <laughs> we've actually started teaching classes on sort of warning forecasting because that's that's a really high stress environment and you know the difference between you being able to type up a paragraph however small it is but you being able to actually write that out and disseminate it quickly can make all the difference to somebody you know and so these are things that need to be taught and I'm glad that we're you know finally sort of doing that because that's a that's got to be really scary your first time oh yeah Uh, I'm I'm sure and, you know, a lot of times the, the weather service radio, which is one way that people can get this information, it's now all automated. But in the old days, it was somebody pressing record and talking into a microphone and then putting it on loop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The days that we weren't chasing, we were always listening for our buddies and be like, oh, you were on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty good. Um, I still listen to the radio all the time, though. So there's... um hits and misses in terms of pronunciation but you can't mock mock the automated system as easily as you could your friend in class the next day i was like listening to a mid-1990s robot pronounce all of the indian town names in oklahoma oh it's fantastic (laughs) poor old potawatomi county (laughs) yeah (laughs) potawatomi every time (laughs) yep 
So yeah, tornado warnings. Um, good memories for those, I guess. <laughs> right, and then things like an ice storm, which is defined as a quarter inch or more of ice accumulation, which will do things like take down power lines. Right, exactly. And so that's that's where the ice storm stuff comes in because that's really bad. Um, yeah. So this we were talking about the winter storm. Five inches plus of snow or sleet accumulation in 12 hours, basically. Um, hopefully you would have had a winter storm watch issued 24 to 48 hours before that event. But, you know, sometimes they're not forecast very correctly <clears throat> this week. <clears throat> right. <laughs> and so sometimes you don't get that, but that's okay. And there are heat advisories and heat warnings. One that I think is misunderstood quite a bit is the red flag warning. Yeah, and so we live this constantly, um, especially during the winter out here. And this one has a lot of criteria that goes along with it, right? It's not just that easy, you know, there's a tornado or not. Right, so it's conditions for not only fire, but for very rapid fire spread. Right. Mm -hmm. So you need low relative humidity, less than 25%, greater than 20 mile an hour winds, Mm -hmm. and... um, crunchy vegetation (laughs) so crunchy is like the friendly word but really it's um you have a certain measure of fuel moisture level in your vegetation right so basically how much moisture do you have in the vegetation is how long it's going to burn and so when you've got crunchy winter vegetation that's all brown and you are in the dry season like we are in the winter time that stuff can burn, and you get those 20-mile-an-hour winds, and it goes fast. It does, and there are tons of different fire indices for the fire spread speed. Um, there's a lot of little uh, sort of nomogram-type calculators that fire departments use to try to figure out how the fire is going to move. Uh, so there's all kinds. You know, depends on the slope, depends on the wind, vegetation type. There are numerical equivalents for different vegetation types. Uh, mm-hmm. So fire forecasting in itself is really a whole nother ballgame. Oh, right. Well, there's a fire forecast center as well out in New Mexico to help get a handle on these. So these people are only, they're forecasters who only talk about fire weather. Um, I have a friend that used to work at the SBC who actually moved out there to focus on fire weather stuff. Um, and I know you used to be a volunteer fireman. I mean, did you guys take note when it was a red flag warning day or what? Oh, absolutely. Uh, So we paid attention to all of these indices quite a bit. And when I had to take the the wildland firefighting class, we learned how to calculate many of these in the field. So you would get your sling psychrometer and you would measure your RH and you would estimate the slope that your wildfire was on and characterize the vegetation. And then you would calculate the spread speed and that would help you decide where to deploy vehicles and all that. Sling psychrometer is my favorite thing to say in meteorology. (laughs) So for those of you that are going, what's a sling psychrometer? Uh, (laughs) It is this little device that has two thermometers on it. One of them is just a plain old, you know, glass tube, mercury type thermometer, though I'm sure it's not mercury now. Yeah. And the other one is identical, except it has a little uh, cotton booty on the bulb. (laughs) And you take your Nalgene and you wet that little cotton booty. And then you t- <laughs> you grab this thing and you whip it around. It's so great. <laughs> and you sling it through the air for, uh, there's a time that you have to do it. I want to say it's like 90 seconds or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, the, um, fu- the fun goes away by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, by the end of it, your arm's pretty tired. Yeah. <laughs> and then you read the, if you've ever heard of the wet bulb temperature, it's, it's that. It is the wet bulb. <laughs> exactly. So you have a dry bulb temperature, which is the normal thermometer, a wet bulb temperature, which is the temperature that the thermometer that had the little booty on it reads. It will be lower because you're evaporatively cooling that thermometer as you're swinging it around. And from that, you can calculate how much moisture is in the air. Exactly. Yeah. Because the more moist, the slower it's going to evaporate off the little sock, the smaller the depression. Mm -hmm. And then... The opposite is also true, and when you have those kind of conditions, you know, you've got a low relative humidity, there's not a lot of water in the air, that fire's going to take off. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there are all kinds of, you know, people say, oh, how fast do you have to swing it? And 
there have been papers on correction factors and they make these things now that have fans that blow through them to make it's measuring water content of the air, water content and density of the air are two things that if you can invent a good instrument to do that, you will be forever rich. Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, you'll put a lot of people out of work that are writing all these papers to say you did it wrong, but you know, right. <laughs> I digress. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sling. Yeah, uh... yeah. I don't, I mean, <laughs> they're just so much fun. Um, I guess one more warning sort of to talk about, I already sort of alluded to this that we get a lot and I think is probably one of the deadliest ones is flash flooding warnings and i mean floods are i guess you just take them for granted you're like okay it's high water but more people die in floods than any other weather related thing right yeah and the speed with which the water level can rise is unreal Right. And so that's where the flash flood warnings are the most terrifying. I mean, you can really go from nothing to deadly in seconds. Right. I mean, in the 70s, we had the very famous Big Thompson Canyon flood Mm -hmm. uh, that unfortunately killed a lot of campers out here in Colorado. Right. I think we've talked about that on the show before, but it was sort of the the canonical flash flood case study. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I mean, that's you've had floods in Wind River Canyon and, you know, most canyons out there are susceptible to this. You don't generally have as many people as in the Big Thompson one. But, um, yeah, these happen a lot, especially in the arid southwest. And the thing that makes it flash is, like John just said, the speed. And the actual warning criteria is flooding that occurs within six hours of a rainfall event versus just a flood warning, which is a more gradual rising of water uh, that persists for a long time. But this is why when you're taking students in the field, like at field camp here in Colorado, if there is a line of thunderstorms moving through an adjacent area to where you're working, you leave. Exactly. So, yeah, this actually happened to us uh, two years ago. Um, We were in this wash system, and we're always in this wash system every year. I've never seen water in it. This is a place um, I used to go really frequently when I was little. Never seen water in it um, ever ever at all, ever. And, you know, Colorado gets these thunderstorms in the afternoon during the summertime. I've still never seen water in it. (laughs) And a couple of years ago, you know, it was just one of those years that was really wet. And we had this happen. And most of the class, it was just me and TAs, actually, that didn't make it across because I stayed out to make sure everyone made it across. And then by the time we got back down to this wash to leave, it was probably three feet deep and right and you're not gonna wait that you no, get washed oh, away it was incredible force yeah it was it was incredible and like i said this is something i've never seen water in and so i talked to some of the other professors that were out there from other um colleges as well and i said man did you could you believe grape creek and they, one guy said he's never seen it in 30 years look like that and it was just you know, 10 minutes that it went from nothing to that. So, yeah, it's it's for real. And that wasn't even a super bad storm. You know, there was tiny pea-sized hail, and it lasted maybe 15 minutes. Right. So it and was just a whole bunch of other storms up Canyon that were happening as well. Yeah, and so one thing that you'll see a lot in all of these warnings, advisories, watches, statements, everything, is the word guidance. Guidance suggests thunderstorm development in the next 12 to 24 hours. Guidance suggests. So guidance is the fancy word for the models tell us. (laughs) But it sounds a lot better, like you've actually done some work yourself instead of just looking at a model output. Right. And really, when I was doing, uh, I'm sure you had to do it too. uh, They would have us participate in undergrad in this weather forecast challenge. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, so you would have a city, and every day you had to forecast the high and the low and the precipitation. Okay. Uh, I always went with guidance <laughs> because it always did better than I could do. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I have a friend who, who would go with, like, guidance plus or minus one, and she took home a plaque, I think, a couple of times. I was like, good for you. <laughs> so that means that, you know, guidance is usually pretty good. Um, but if you are 
on the verge of weather being a weather weenie or you are a full-blown card-carrying weather weenie, um, you probably look at a part of the weather service page called the forecast discussion. And so that's what I go to. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's, it's issued to the public, but it's written by the forecasters. There's lots of forecasting language in there. And there's lots of you know, depending on who's writing it, very meteorological, you know, synoptic and mesoscale weather terms in there. Um, but I think that's great. And I would suggest that if you're even interested in this a little bit, you should start reading the forecast discussions. They come out at specific times during the day. And you always know that it's going to be bad when a forecast discussion comes out, not at the regularly scheduled time. <laughs> Right. And in there, you'll learn a lot of meteorology just by reading them and looking things up. You know, you might see things like advection of warm air behind the da-da-da is going to, you know, and you'll, you'll pick up on words. And we're actually going to talk about some of those in future shows. Uh, right. Exactly. Um, if you've got a really good weather service um, local office, they'll have links to some of these more obscure or maybe even not more obscure just some of the weather words there's a big dictionary online in the weather service um that will you know you just got to click on it it's got a great little definition and then you can move on so it's it's super good and i would suggest anyone interested in just like i said being a bigger weather weenie looking for some guidance they can go to the forecast discussion and um oh. yeah <laughs> and figure out you know in, in the heads of the forecasters why did they issue an advisory instead of a watch you know and now that you know the difference you know that there are reasons they did that and that's where you'll find those reasons you know and um, then the warnings are more on the fly things that happen but you'll hear a lot about it when you do that and especially on the spc website um those convective outlooks in the summertime are really interesting to read Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you also see some weird, oh, not really abbreviations, but strange weather-only contractions of words <laughs> that were important during the tele teletype days when <laughs> sending characters was not... that you. So things like FROPA, F-R-O-P-A, which oh, is frontal passage. I, I know you use that in actual spoken language, as do I. <laughs> yes. That was, that was quite the FROPA we had last night. and. It's a very small number of people know exactly what you mean. Oh, and they'll be the ones that are like, oh, my God, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll pull out their, uh, you know, Davis Weather Station data on their phone and show you exactly when it went by. Quit yeah. talking about me. Yep. <laughs> you know I am. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I just thought that that was something that maybe, you know, if people had questions about, maybe this clears up some of the ambiguity about those words that get thrown around and maybe has lent you some importance on what you should pay attention to. Yeah, but I think we should probably move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday! Yay! Mono cowbell. I'm back to recording at home. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so you, you found this paper and... It's great. It's, it's, it's by Claire Ainsworth. It's a, a New Scientist article called Death by Chocolate. Is it possible? <laughs> right. So it's, it's not really, you know, it's kind of an article as opposed to a paper, but outlining some research um, that the title's funnier than, than the actual <laughs> reality, which is yes. <laughs> it is possible. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, the first paragraph is what made me go ahead and choose it because I thought it was really great. It says, It was a sorry end. Cut down in his prime, the cunning thief lay on the slab, his cold body offering pathologist Brett Gartrell no outward sign of how he had met his maker. Once Gartrell had wielded his scalpel, however, the cause became clear. A belly stuffed with sticky brown gunk. Diagnosis? Death by chocolate. And only in the third paragraph do you find out that this is actually about a New Zealand parrot. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. You're like, oh, wow. this, Yeah, that really grabbed me in. That was some good science writing right there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and hence the thief thing as well. Like, I used to take care of exotic birds, and they are brats, man. <laughs> They're really <laughs> brats. So, obviously, this person knows the cunning thief that a parrot can be. 
And that's exactly it. This parrot had, well, a lot of these New Zealand parrots steal people food, just like seagulls. And he ate this chocolate and it killed him, which it will do to a lot of animals because of this one substance in chocolate that's really deadly. Thank God not to us, though. Well. Right. It is. Just yes. anything is poisonous in a high enough quantity. Right. Exactly. And so luckily so, ours is much higher. <laughs> right. And one of the interesting things about these birds is not only do they forage for things, they are persistent. It says they've even been reported to pull off pieces of cars trying to find <laughs> useful food. This does not surprise me at all, man. Parrots are jerks. <laughs> They're such jerks. Um, yeah, so not surprising. Um, they said that they'll try anything that is vaguely edible. <laughs> right. So they also talk about that, you know, chocolate is safe for humans. We, we know this. And that the Mayans actually thought that cocoa had divine origins. And so every April they sacrificed a dog with cocoa colored markings. That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> Did you look down at your little dog and say, oh, thank goodness you're not exactly cocoa colored? <laughs> it's true. But then the next paragraph starts out, knife wielding priests aside, comma. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, this was really good. Um, <laughs> so for, I, I thought this was really interesting because it is poisonous in, just like you had said, the right dosage. And so what is that dosage for humans? It would be 50 kilos in a single sitting. Right. So if you want to eat, you know, 20 odd pounds of chocolate. Um, but yeah. yeah, go for it. <laughs> but it's actually these compounds... So they're called methylxanthanes, and the two specific ones we're looking at are theobromine and theophylline. Oh, so what I thought was really interesting about this is they're they're actually trying to take these uh, specific compounds and turn them into pest control devices. Right. So out here in Colorado, we have a very big coyote problem. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it's estimated that coyotes kill about $44 million worth of livestock every year. That's impressive. Yeah, that's a lot of a lot of hamburger. Uh, yeah, and okay. they uh, they also you know they damage people's property. They occasionally attack people. I've eat. had a dog in the past that's been attacked by coyotes. Mm -hmm. Eat lots um, of cats. Yeah. Yeah, and the traditional poison is sodium cyanide, which <laughs> works very well on coyotes. The problem is it works well on people and cattle and pretty much everything else too. Right, exactly. And so, I mean, as terrible as it is having to call this herd, it'd probably be better to do it with something that isn't lethal to the rest of everything walking around, right? And so that's why these methyl xanthines are being investigated to do this. And they're even talking about using these for, like, actual pest control around houses and stuff for bugs, Right, and there's also some work in Hawaii using them to uh, knock off some invasive tree frogs that were accidentally introduced in the 80s. Uh, yeah, oops. <laughs> oops, yeah, and snails even. Uh, right, and so a lot of these things that this is also being looked at in conjunction with caffeine, you know, chocolate has caffeine as well, and so caffeine does this um, in large enough amounts, it also works um, in this sort of same way as a pest control. So I thought that was a really interesting use of this technology. Um, and I mean, and it goes on from there too, right? They're talking about <laughs> how there are certain things in chocolate compounds and chocolate that actually could potentially help you have better teeth. <laughs> right. So there's some compounds that prevent tooth decay. There's a compound or the, there's an extract from cocoa that prevents Heliobacter pylori, which uh -huh. is what causes stomach ulcers and all this other nasty gut infection. Uh, but here's where I think a lot of the, when you see these articles, they're like, eating chocolate prevents ulcers. It's because somebody saw the paper that there's this extract from cocoa that has the capability to prevent Heliobacter pylori, which... Uh. As they point out, you know, eating chocolate isn't good for your teeth. The tiny amount of these extracts that are actually in the chocolate are far offset by all the sugar and everything else. But yeah. we can hopefully use them to make things like better toothpaste or better stomach settlers. Right. Exactly. Um, 
<laughs> so the paper ends, I love this, as manufacturers follow all over themselves to advertise chocolate's health-boosting potential, there's a wry satisfaction to be had in knowing that its sinister side is being put to good use, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the article, it says, Claire Ainsworth will be testing her own tolerance to theobromine over the coming weeks. <laughs> Uh, it's worth it to mention this was a December article, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, they even mentioned chocolate Santas in here somewhere. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, it was more than I knew about chocolate, and I didn't know why chocolate was bad for dogs. It's just because things like dogs and rabbits metabolize this theobromine so much slower than us uh, that it can actually be fatal to them. And as little as... Uh, touch over 200 grams can be fatal to a dog the size of a German Shepherd. Yeah, so that's pretty big. And so, yeah, that metabolism difference, I didn't realize that that was the, that was the thing either, that I just knew don't give dogs chocolate. Um, so, yeah, be careful around your furry friends when you have that and just keep all the chocolate for yourself, which isn't hard to do. And if you do have pets, quick word of advice, if you have the Amazon person in a tube... I won't say the name in case you have one, uh, but you can say, hey, person in a tube, can dogs or can cats have pears or whatever you want to know about? And it'll tell you if it's safe to feed your animal. Oh, wow. That's a that's a good idea because there's some weird stuff like dogs can't have grapes. Right. Or onions. So before you give your dog something off the table, uh, just shout out to your person in the tube and they'll tell you. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have a fun paper that you think we should be discussing or a topic for us to discuss, we've got a few great listener suggestions that we're working on now. We would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. We're in the Slack chat room, the softwareunderground.org and the Don't Panic channel. And if you are feeling particularly um, nice towards us, you can go to our Patreon and you can support us there, uh, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.